Hello and welcome to A History of the United States, episode 132, Repeal of the Stamp Act. In our last episode, we looked at how resistance to the Stamp Act stiffened in late 1765 across America, while introducing John and Abigail Adams into the narrative. We then turned back to London to look at the British response. It was coordinated by Cumberland, who wanted a highly aggressive policy, but then he suddenly died on October the 31st and threw the British ministry into chaos. The fundamental problem with the Rockingham ministry was a lack of seniority and experience. It was a collection of minor politicians held together by the 35-year-old Rockingham, an incredibly wealthy landlord from Yorkshire with a gift for forming alliances with figures more able than himself. He already attracted Edmund Burke to be his private secretary. The thinking was that Rockingham could be the next Newcastle and guide the Whigs for the next generation. However, the plan had several problems. Rockingham was lazy, lacking initiative. He didn't have the confidence in his own political judgments and was fearful of public speaking. He much preferred to reside at his estates than in Westminster. Everybody, Rockingham included, thought he made a terrible Prime Minister. The ministry was made up of lesser politicians, more used to opposition, and found themselves unable to get out of this mindset. The two Secretaries of State, Grafton and Conway, wanted to make Pitt Prime Minister, but Pitt wanted to be called by the King and have the authority to lead a government on his own terms. With Pitt refusing to lead Rockingham's ministry, the situation stuttered on into December, while reports from America got worse and worse. Rockingham, in the most Rockingham manner possible, spoke with no experts on the colonies, but instead the wealthy London merchants, who convinced him that the principal issue was economic. This was followed by the political question, and finally by the institutional question. The Stamp Act obviously wasn't working. It was bringing trade and British industry to a halt, while Parliament felt humiliated they couldn't control the colonies. After communicating with Gage, Rockingham managed to understand, in a way that Cumberland had not, that any attempt to enforce the Stamp Act with the military would lead to immediate insurrection. Rockingham began to feel that every piece of colonial legislation since the Seven Years' War had done nothing but harm trade. We've given understandable focus to the Stamp Act, but let's not forget it was one of many. The Quartering Act had been a disaster, failing to allow Gage to quarter his troops, while also being a grievance to the colonists, who felt it another attempt to tax them. The Virginians, who, through the Virginia Resolves, seemed the principal opposition to the Stamp Act, were also harmed by the American Currency Act, which hurt their colonial currency, and the American Duties Act, also known as the Sugar Act, which produced no revenue, increased the expense of the colonial bureaucracy, and alienated the colonial merchants. Rockingham realised that this mess needed to be untangled, but nothing could be done before the immediate crisis. The Stamp Act crisis was addressed.
By early 1766, Rockingham had decided that the Act must be repealed. Conway and Grafton agreed, but numerous senior figures in the administration, the Lord Chancellor Nottingham and the Attorney General Charles York, still wanted to follow Cumberland's suppression policy. Rockingham hoped that Pitt could be called back, releasing him from having to make a decision, but he gave up on January the 11th. Parliament opened on January 14th with a speech from the monarch to set out the administration's policies. Lacking policy, George was forced to instruct Parliament to resolve the Stamp Act crisis with little direction beyond that. MPs started giving speeches. Grenville's opposition argued for enforcement, while the government awkwardly sat there. And finally, Pitt rose to speak. He reminded the chamber that the Americans were the sons of England, not bastards. Parliament was sovereign over the colonies, but this did not need to translate to a right to levy an internal direct tax. The Americans, obviously, shouldn't submit to this tax. The Stamp Act was an error and should be abolished. Grenville rose to speak in response, saying, quote, The colonists border on open rebellion, and if the doctrine I have heard, the distinction between internal and external taxation, this day be confirmed, I fear they will lose that name to take that of revolution. The government, over them being dissolved, a revolution will take place in America. I cannot understand the difference between external and internal taxes. That this kingdom has the sovereign, the supreme legislative power over America, is granted. It cannot be denied, and taxation is a part of that sovereign power. Protection and obedience are reciprocal. Great Britain protects America. America is bound to yield obedience. If not, tell me when Americans were emancipated. The nation has run itself into an immense debt to give them their protection, and now they are called upon to contribute a small share towards the public expense, an expense arising from themselves. They renounce your authority, insult your officers, and break out, I might almost say, into open rebellion. End quote. According to the rules of parliamentary debate, Pitt was unable to speak a second time. What he rose, saying, I do not speak twice, I only finish. The chamber encouraged him, shouting, go on, go on. And then Pitt gave one of the speeches of his life. The gentleman tells us, America is obstinate. America is almost in open rebellion. I rejoice that America has resisted. Three millions of people so dead to all the feelings of liberty as voluntary to submit to be slaves would have been fit instruments to make slaves of the rest. I come not here armed at all points with law cases and acts of parliament, with the statute book doubled down in dog's ears to defend the cause of liberty. If I had, I would have shown that, even under former arbitrary reigns, parliaments were ashamed of taxing a people without their consent and allowing them representatives. 
I am no courtier of America. I stand up for this kingdom. I maintain that the Parliament has the right to bind, to restrain America. Our legislative power over the colonies is sovereign and supreme. When it ceases to be sovereign and supreme, I would advise every gentleman to sell his stands if he can and embark for that country. When two countries are connected together, like England and her colonies, without being incorporated, the one must necessarily govern, the greater must rule the less. But so rule, as not to contradict the fundamental principles that are common to both. If the gentleman does not understand the difference between external and eternal taxes, I can't help it. But there is a plain difference between taxes levied for the purpose of raising a revenue and duties imposed for the regulation of trade, for the accommodation of the subject. Although, in the consequences, some revenue might accidentally arise from the latter. The gentleman asks when the colonies were emancipated. But I desire to know when they were made slaves. I will be bold to affirm that the profit to Great Britain from the trade of the colonies through all its branches is two millions a year. This is the fund that carried you triumphantly through the last war. The estates that were rented at £2,000 a year three score years ago are £3,000 at present. Those estates sold them from 15 to 18 years purchase. The same may now be sold for 30. You owe this to America. This is the price America pays for her protection. And shall a miserable financier come with a boast that he can bring a peppercorn into the exchequer for the loss of millions to the nation? A great deal has been said, without doors of power, of the strength of America. It is a topic that ought to be cautiously meddled with. In a good cause, on a sound bottom, the force of this country can crush America to atoms. I know the valour of your troops, I know the skill of your officers. But on this ground, on the Stamp Act, when so many here will think it a crying injustice, I am one who will lift up my hands against it. In such a cause, your success would be hazardous. America, if she fell, would fall like the strong man. She would embrace the pillars of the state and pull down the constitution along with her. Is this your boasted peace? Not to sheath the sword in the scabbard, but to sheath it in the bowels of your countrymen? The Americans have not acted in all things with prudence and temper. The Americans have been wronged. They have been driven to madness by injustice. Will you punish them for the madness you have occasioned? Upon the whole, I will beg leave to tell the House what is really my opinion. It is that the Stamp Act should be repealed absolutely, totally and immediately that the reason for the repeal should be assigned because it was founded on an erroneous principle. At the same time, let the sovereign authority of this country be asserted in as strong terms as can be devised and be made to extend to every point of legislation whatsoever, that we may bind their trade, confine their manufacturers, and exercise every power whatsoever, except 
that of taking their money out of their pockets without their consent. End quote. This gave a boost to the Rockingham Ministry. He ordered Charles York, the Attorney General, to draft a statement of parliamentary supremacy, which would be followed by the removal of the Stamp Act, citing the complaints of the London merchants. Rockingham wanted to take the action that the colonists wanted, but wouldn't concede the principle of parliamentary sovereignty to the extent that he suppressed the petitions of the Stamp Act Congress. On February 3rd, the Declaratory Act was introduced to Parliament, asserting that Parliament had the authority to make laws that would bind the Americans in all cases whatsoever. Pitt argued against this, protesting that Parliament did not have the authority to directly tax the Americans without American representatives in the chamber, but he was in the minority on this. With the issue of Parliament's authority sorted, they then moved on to condemning American violence, but with the understanding that the enforcement of the Stamp Act was impossible. A motion by Grenville supporting enforcement was voted down 274 to 134. The Commons continued to call witnesses citing the economic damage being done to the British economy. The major exception was Benjamin Franklin, who took a different line, saying that Americans defended America, not the British, and if the Crown needed funds, then requests should be made to the colonial legislatures. He argued relentlessly that Americans, when push came to shove, did not need the British and could become self-sufficient in a couple of years. This led to arguments by some of the British that the Americans were full of ingratitude. Finally, at 1.45am on the morning of February 22nd, 1766, the Commons voted 275 to 167 in favour of repealing the Stamp Act. Then there were the formalities with the Repeal Act and the Declaratory Act passing the Commons on March 4th and the Lords on March 17th. George III made the trip to Westminster the next day to give royal assent. And that was it. The Americans had fought the Stamp Act. And they had won. This was an opportunity for the British Atlantic Empire to take a new path. Franklin had laid out his blueprint of how this future relationship might work. But, as the Declaratory Act hints, the British instead followed a road to ruin. But all that will have to wait until next time. Thanks for listening. I'll see you then.